0: following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the... Where are we? Oh, yeah! Uh, Hang on a second. I just realized something. I remembered where we were, but at the same time, remembering where we were reminded me that there was something I didn't fix. Uh, I think we should be okay. But just in case, I'm going to fix it. An audio setting. It's generally an audio setting. Okay. I think we're good now. All right. Let me me come in again. Hey, everybody! Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. Uh, uh, This is session four of Out of the Silent Planet. Thanks for joining me tonight. Uh, Hey, just a couple uh, moot reminders uh, for my announcements tonight because we are coming up on some exciting moots uh, and have some really exciting, cool news uh, about one of our moots. So... First, are two regional moots, which are coming up this coming month in February. We have Texmoot on February 8th, and we have SoCal Moot on the 22nd of February. Uh, the former in Houston, Texas, the latter uh, out in Hollywood at the Netflix headquarters. So it's going to be a really good time. Uh, I'm, looking, I'm really looking forward to both of those. Uh, just uh, talking with folks about Texmoot stuff today and uh, getting ready for that. I'm excited. Um, and uh, and SoCal Moot is going to be uh, is going to be a lot of fun. I think we're going to have a, a really fun interactive time there uh, in uh, Hollywood this year. It's going to be great. Um, the other announcement, though, is about Myth Moot. Now, in case. You didn't know Mythmoot, of course, is our big moot of the year. Our regional moots are small one day events uh, designed to enable folks from you know a particular region who can are within driving distance of our moot location to be able to get together. It's uh, been they're wonderful times, inexpensive and, and uh, uh, really fun. So uh but Mythmoot is a big deal, right? Mythmoot is our four-day event. Once a year, uh, the sort of the full family gathering, and it's uh, it's a really exciting experience. So, the cool thing about MythMoot this year, and hang on, I've got a where's my right, there it is. Okay, hang on, let me share my screen so that y'all can see that. That would be good too. Okay, and there it is. Okay, great. Uh, anyway, so MythMoot is. Um, uh, uh, at the end of june as usual twenty fifth to the twenty eighth in Leesburg Virginia same location it's been for the last few years uh and uh we are uh, uh we're excited to be back now this week we're announcing a special event that we just uh recently finalized so uh dr. Roan Flieger, who is like the Galadriel of tolkien studies uh is going to be joining us uh for the moot this year, which by itself is uh is Exciting, right? If you've never had a chance to have a conversation with Verlund Flieger, you owe it to yourself. She is just a wonderful, wonderful person uh, to get to meet uh, and to learn from. Um, uh, She is uh, absolutely delightful. So that by itself, totally worth the cost of admission. But in addition, this year, uh, we're going to be doing a really special thing. Uh, uh, Verlund is coming out with a new book. So if you go to the MythMoot page here, uh, which is just signumuniversity.org/mythmoot, uh, and you scroll down, you can see Rowan Flicker is one of our special guests, uh, and her new book, which is called Arthurian Voices, uh, is going to be. This is going to be. We're going to do her book release uh, at MythMoot, uh, and in addition, as a special event, she wrote a play. Um, A lot of people don't realize that Dr. Flieger is not only one of the foremost Tolkien scholars in the world, uh, but also uh, is uh, a creative writer in her own right. Uh, And so she wrote a play called The Bargain, which is inspired by uh, the Middle English poem Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. And we're going to do a reader's theater performance uh, of The Bargain at Mithmoot. Um... Uh, so anyway, that it's 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 gonna, I'm really really looking forward to that. Uh, I, I think she's going to be directing. Uh, I, I she, maybe she'll be participating. I'm not sure, but at least she'll be directing that. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, several of us are going to participate. I'm not sure who I'm, who I'm going to play. I think I might be the Green Knight actually, which or rather uh, Sir Sir Bersalak at home. I think is who who I'm going to be. Um, which is uh, which is, I can be jovial. I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, so anyhow, that's uh that's gonna be a really fun thing. So uh do come to Mythmoot, join us uh, for Doctor Flieger's book release party and uh the um uh, the, the, the reading of her play and get to meet Dr. Flieger. And we're going to have other guests and there's going to be other really fun and exciting things that I've heard rumors about. Uh, and I'm excited to tell you more about later on as we go. So anyway, uh, early bird, uh, pricing is open for that. One last quick thing I wanted to mention, uh, for this relates to all of our upcoming moots actually. Um, and this is a message. If you're new to our moots, don't worry about it, you won't notice anything. But if you've been signing up for our moots for a while, you will notice that something is different, right? We have a new registration page. It's the as you can see, the look of it is fairly Bare bones right now uh, because this is brand new. Where this is a this is a custom system that's been written for Signum University. Uh, so we're really really excited to be shifting away from an expensive and complicated third party program that you have to make a separate login for and that we have to pay expensive fees for and everything, uh, and just being able to do things simply and directly ourselves. Uh, so these are our um, moot registration uh, forms. It's uh, so again if you've not done it yet but you've registered with this before don't be surprised it's really simple no logins no just uh, all you this you just got this one page form uh and it's really simple and that's it so even the mythmoot one which is more complicated because you got to order you know decide if you want to order a t-shirt and stuff like that and uh, all that stuff uh uh still just a, a very simple one page registration uh for all the things you got all the different uh uh, combinate of you know possibilities of coming one day or two days or whatever um, and then you got your t-shirt order if you want to order, and that's it, one page. So uh, I love this lovely new uh, short system that we have here. so just n- to make sure nobody's too surprised uh, but i I hope even if you are surprised, it will be a it'll be a pleasant surprise. so anyway, just wanted to draw your attention to that, okay back now to uh, our discussion of Out of the Silent Planet. We got almost through uh, Ransom's time with the Hrassa last time, and of course we get to uh, travel towards Meldalorn this time. But more importantly, what I really want to focus on uh, today is his encounter with the two other species of, of Hnau, especially the sorens Of course we don't get as much with the Triggy, but a little bit. Um, But more as Ransom finally begins to sort out the answer to what has been his pressing question from the beginning, right? And his pressing question from the beginning was, okay, so who's in charge, right? Who is really the boss? If there are three different rational species, how does that work, right? He cannot imagine a world in which one of these three species has not achieved dominance over the other, right? And we looked at a couple moments when he was trying to glean this information from the Harasa, right? To try to figure out what really are the relations there. And he still seemed to have left the Harasa still under the impression that most likely the Sorns are actually calling the shot the Saroni are actually calling the shots. Right. Um, even if the Frosa don't know it, right? They just—they have the—they're manipulating. They're probably manipulating the Frosa, even if they don't realize it. Um, uh, so, uh, so let's see what happens when Ransom begins to encounter uh, the other, uh, the other species. Yeah, Sarah. He, exactly. He—he's. Uh, with, from that conversation with the Hrasa where the Hrasa are telling him like that, that's a thing that the that the Sereni would know, right? He deduces they're the intelligentsia. And that has weight, has a certain weight for him, right? If they are the intelligentsia, if one of these races is highly educated, uh and highly intelligent, clearly they have to be the ones really in charge, right? And if the Hrasa don't act like it or don't Think that that's the case. It just means that the Saroni must be doing a really, really good job of being in charge, right? Um, okay, but first we get his first encounter with the with the Eldila with with an Eldil, uh, and this, of course, is during the uh, the Hnacra hunt. Uh, so he and Hyoy and Hwin are uh, um, paddling up the river, right, looking for the Hnakra. Uh and We get, there is an Eldil coming to us over the water. Ransom could see nothing, or nothing that he could distinguish from imagination in the dance of sunlight on the lake. A moment later, Hyoi spoke again, but not to him. What is it, Skyborn? What happened next was the most uncanny experience Ransom had yet had on Malacandra. He heard the voice. It seemed to come out of the air, about a yard above his head, and it was almost an octave higher than the Hrosses, higher even than his own. "'He realized that a very little difference in his ear "'would have made the Eldil as inaudible to him as it was invisible. "'It is the man with you, Hyoi, said the voice. "'He ought not to be here. "'Sorry, he ought not to be there. "'He ought to be going to Oyarsa. "'Bent now of his own kind from Thulcandra are following him. "'He should go to Oyarsa. "'If they find him anywhere else, there will be evil.' "'He hears you, Skyborn,' said Hyoi. "'And have you no message for my wife?' You know what she wishes to be told. I have a message for Hlari, said the Eldo, but you will not be able to take it. I go to her now myself. All that is well. Only, let the man go to Oyarsa. There was a moment's silence. He is gone, said Huin, and we have lost our share in the hunt. Yes, said Huy with a sigh. We must put Hman ashore and teach him the way to Meldalorn. Okay. Um great. So I you know, we're not told what uh Hioi's wife Clary wants to be told wishes to be told. I yeah, I mean I don't know. My only guess, I uh, you know, have you no message for my wife? It sounds like you know, like that she, I mean, I don't know. I mean, first, my first thought is that, you know, that she's pregnant or going to bear a child or something, um, something about her or is she pregnant and she wishes to be told something about her child? I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the only guess that I have. Um, apart from that, the only context that leads me to think that, of course, is that it's a male asking about something that his wife wishes to be told. So in the context of the husband-wife relationship, childbearing seems the logical subject. Otherwise, I don't think we have any... I mean, it's perfectly possible, of course, that his wife wishes to be told something about their new fishing nets or something, I don't know. But um, if it's something like that, we have zero data of any kind, right, to prompt us in guessing what it might possibly be. Um, But... To me, I think the most interesting thing is not that, is not what it is that she might be told, but that statement, uh, Jennifer Pope, that you were pointing to there, um, I have a message for Hlary, but you will not be able to take it. Um, that is a an indicative statement in the future tense. The Eldil is telling Hyoy that Hyoy is not going to be able to take it To his wife, right? Now, at the time, that is, when reading the book for the first time, that is not a sentence that has any obvious immediate meaning, right? But of course, in retrospect, Hyoi is about to be killed, right? Hyoi will die in minutes after this conversation happens. And it is hard for me to understand that statement in any other way than as... A prophecy as a prediction um, of the future. I think again, I, I can't understand any other way of reading that sentence. Maybe it could be understood some other way, um, but I don't see. I don't see how. Right. Um, so, given that the Eldil makes this prediction, which, of course, does turn out to be an accurate prediction. Um, it, th- by the way, that, Sarah, makes me kind of loop back around and wonder about the thing which Clary wishes to be told, right? Um, is it something about the future, right? Is there some—is this a thing that happens? Do Hrosa consult the Eldilla about things that might occur, Right. About things that will that will happen or could happen. Is it is it a consultation about the future? Is that a uh, is that a is that a thing? Yeah, Bruce, I think the other thing that influences me to think that it must be a childbearing issue, right, is not just the husband wife context. But but yes, the thinking about. um, The parallel situations in the biblical tradition, right? Thinking about the, uh, you know, Samuel's mom and, and, uh, uh, Hannah, right? Wasn't that Hannah? Um, Hannah and, uh, Sarah and Rachel and, you know, others who have, uh, been waiting for their wombs to be opened. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of, uh, the sort of thing that it certainly made me think of too. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> Veronica, that's interesting. Veronica says maybe he's going to tell her that she will, in fact, have a child, but not with Hyoi, right? <laughs> because is about to die. Um, I, oof, I don't know that they remarry. Um, that wasn't covered, right? We know that the Hrossa mate for life in the sense that they don't, like, there's no divorce among the Hrossa. Um, but in the case of, of an accidental death like this, you know, an, an untimely death, as it were, though I doubt anyone on Malachandra would call it an untimely death. Um, but nevertheless... Um, uh, sorry, that's an old idea. that No one dies untimely, right? Everyone dies at the hour in which they were appointed to die. It might be a surprise to you and everyone else around you, right? But God isn't surprised. Uh, anyway, so... Um, but, but, yeah, so I... I the timing seems to me, uh, um, yeah, uh, Jennifer, I, I, I agree. It's, it does open up this, uh, melancholy scene, right? Of Clary being told first that she is going to have a child and second that she's a widow within hours of each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. um, Yeah, yeah. Now, Colette, I do agree that there is a kind of nonchalance, I think you're right, that seems to me a good word, about Hyoi's consultation with the Eldila, right? There's no sort of ritual formula, there's no reverence, there's no propitiation, there's no sense of any of that, right? You know, there's no like, oh Eldil, like if in your wisdom and generosity you could possibly bestow upon me your right no he he asks nonchalantly, as you say. And have you no message for my wife? You know what she wishes to be told, right? That's very nonchalant. That's very conversational. And so Colette, your conclusion that um that this kind of conversation happens at least sort of regularly does seem to me also to follow, right? Um, it seems very likely that these... And we know that they have conversations with Eldila. We know that Hioi himself was having a conversation with an Eldil on the day that he met Ransom. Uh, we have, of course, that scene where uh, Ransom was passing by that young female cross who was talking to an Eldil, um, which he couldn't see and, and um didn't know was there. Um so yeah, just like and Hyoi doesn't even notice, right? He's walking with Hyoi and Hoi walks by and doesn't even pay any attention to the fact that this girl is is speaking to the Eldil, right? So that seems to be nonchalant, normal. Uh, Even sort of casual. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Jennifer, I agree. Jennifer Ewing, of course, is immediately imagining the poem that Clary is likely to make that experience into. Right. Owed on a lovely evening with my husband who subsequently dies and leaves me to raise the child on my own. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Right. No, doubtless, Clary would say that she would take the grief of losing her husband and the joy of finding that she was bearing his child. And those two things together would mix in her belly. Right. And she would. Uh, digest them, and then bring them forth as poetry later on. And that is like the full moment of that experience, right? Um, that, I think, is uh, probably what Larry would say uh, if you talk to her about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. The Eldale... Notice a few other things about this conversation. The eldo begins by, I don't know if chiding is quite the right word, but it's in that direction, right? It is the man with you. He ought not to be there, right? So the eldo comes in and says, you guys are doing it wrong, right? Not, it's not a warning, you know, this is not um, let not the man go further or something like that, right? This is not, I advise you to send him off post-haste, right? No, this is, you guys are doing something wrong. The man ought not to be there. He ought to be going to Oyarsa. He should go to Oyarsa. Um, and at the end, only let the man go to Oyarsa, right? So we have a repeated command, right? But not just a command. This is not just a decree, because this is not the administration of the decree. It was known that he should go to Oyarsa, right? He knew, Ransom knew, that uh, he was supposed to go see Oyarsa, right? I mean, that was something he's been actively uh, actively avoiding, right? Um, Only at the end does it really become... An imperative, right? Um, let the man go to Oyarsa, right? There we're finally in the imperative, uh, the imperative mood, right? Um, b- but before that, it's more of a, I don't know, a lecturing tone, right? He ought not to be there. That this this is not this is not okay. What you guys are doing is not right. Um, and it seems to me not. It seems to me likely that this, of course, is connected with the prophecy that the Eldil makes, but you will not be able to take it because you have already done the wrong thing, right? Um, Hyoi should have sent ransom sooner to Meldalorn. He should have sent ransom to. So, I mean, and why hasn't. Ransom been sent to Oyarsa yet? Because they're all focused on the Hnakra hunt, right? Because they really want to hunt the Hnakra. Um, and this is interesting. Oh, Jennifer, what a great observation. I agree with you. It is interesting that he uses there instead of here. The Eldul is, well, I was going to say standing right there, except not standing. Right? Anyway, the Eldo the is hovering right there. Right. And so instead of saying to Hioi, he he ought not to be here. I'm here. You're here. He's here. That shouldn't happen. Right. He says he ought not to be there as if he, the Eldila, is speaking from a great distance away. Right. Um, So, Jennifer, I agree with you. I really like how that creates this uncertainty. Right. Is the Eldil there actually? Not necessarily, not in the same sense. In which, Hyoy and ransom are there is a sense in which although, in one sense he's there, in another sense he's looking at them from a distance uh, and observing this. Um, yeah, yeah, um, good. And Jennifer Pope, you're right. Um, it's funny, by the way. I've been noticing in this, uh, in this, in the discussion of this book, it's like in every single class we get pairs of people with the same first name who keep commenting in close proximity to each other. And it's not always the same pair, right? We had uh, David Erbach and David Attlee in class one, right? I kept going back and forth between Davids. Uh, anyway. Uh, and it's the Jennifers tonight. Anyway, Jennifer Pope was saying, um, uh, we are learning now that the Eldil are sort of in charge in some sense. They do deliver, uh, strongly worded suggestions. Yes. Yes, exactly. At the very least, this Eldil is serving as something like, what, like the moral conscience? At the very least, the very most laid-back version, right, of understanding the role of this Eldil is that he's being the Jiminy Cricket of Hyoy here, right? Perched on his shoulder and telling him what is the right thing that he should be doing. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, and uh, Brian did a great point. Uh, is it significant that the Eldil does not speak to Ransom, even though he's speaking about him? Does it have something to do with Oyarsa not having authority uh, over those not on his planet? Um, yes, I would suspect so, actually. Um, given that Huy assumes that this Eldil has been sent as a messenger right? That the role of this Eldila, of this Eldil, sorry, I keep messing up my singular and plurals. Um, the role of this Eldil is as as messenger, right? In fact, he even goes on to assume that he's been sent over to this area because he's going to go on and convey a message to Hilary as well after this, right? So that the Eldil is a messenger of Oyarsa is assumed by Hyoi. And it's fairly clear if that's assuming that Hyoy is correct about that and I see no reason to doubt it. It's therefore fairly clear that the Eldil is sent with a message not to Ransom but to Hyoy. Right? The message is to Hyoy and Huin uh, he needs to go to Oyarsa. He should have gone to Oyarsa already. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, Brian, I think it's a really good point. Um, Stephen, good, that's a good point. Stephen uh, points out that uh, by saying he ought not to be there specifies there in the boat where he's sitting, rather than creating potential confusion, because if he said he ought not to be here, it could mean here as in on Malacandra in the first place, right? Um, so he's uh being a little bit more specific in his reference, and I agree. And Sarah that is exactly what the other thing that I was most interested in about this on the one hand in the society of the hrossa we are getting what looks like a glimpse into an unfallen society ransom keeps assuming that you know the fall is operative that they share basic human temptations remember he really begins wrestling with this when he begins to understand from Hui that there's no such thing as divorce or adultery among the cross. Like, it's just, it almost never happens. Um, and he finds it hard to believe that, you know, so again, the implication is they're fundamentally different, right? That they just, they don't experience the same temptations that we do as if they were an unfallen race. But Sarah, you're right. There's disobedience here right um even if it's not really bad i mean all they've done is delay it right they have prioritized preparing for the hanakra hunt instead of sacrificing their role immediately or up front sacrificing their role in the hanakra hunt in order to send ransom on his way um, but that's still an act of disobedience right that still follows uh the sort of classic sin pattern, right? Putting your own desires in front of obedience. Um, so, um, exactly, Stephen. They put their own desires over what they knew to be right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, there seems to, be, from this, it would seem that we can conclude that Malachandra is in some kind of. I don't want to say intermediary state because, of course, to some extent, um, you know, to say that you could have an intermediary state between fallen and unfallen is like saying you can have a, an intermediary state between, you know, virgin and non-virgin. Right. I mean, it's 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 uh, it's like a, it's kind of an all or nothing sort of deal. Um, and if that's the case, we have to conclude that the now of Malacandra are not unfallen. They can sin. They do sin. We're seeing it here, right? We're getting direct evidence of them acting disobediently, of putting their own them putting their own desires first. It can happen. It does happen. We're watching it happen. And yet they're clearly not a corrupt society. The kind of fundamental corruption, the kind of fundamental competition between races which Ransom assumes must happen does not, in fact, seem to happen, right? Um... So even if we do see, as we do see here, that they're not unfallen completely, they're not sin, sinless completely, yet nevertheless, um, they are far less morally corrupt um, than uh, than mankind is. Um, yeah, yeah, Um Yeah, Rachel, I don't really know what that would mean. Rachel's wondering if, you know, maybe there are types of sin that they're not susceptible to, possibly. Um, yeah, I—but I, again, their language doesn't have a word for evil, for bad—like, to say that someone is a, is a bad man, right? Um, that's why they have to use that word bent, right? Something that's bent out of shape is the only— is the closest they can get to the uh the concept of badness or of evil. Um, it's not something that's really on their radar screen. So um, but you're right, Colette. This small disobedience does cost Hyoi his life, or at least leads to his death, right? There are consequences, immediate consequences. There are, Swift consequences, anyway, we should say, perhaps, um, of this disobedience. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Stephen, that's exactly what I'm thinking about for it. Um, Stephen says, Might this be how humanity would be if man fell but had an uncorrupted Oyarsa? Yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Um, The species has fallen... But the Oyarsa has not. There is no corrupting influence on them. In fact, they are under the guidance and. I mean, notice after this small piece of disobedience, or even just delayed obedience, right? It's it's really pretty minor. What happens? An Eldil shows up and instructs them, not just rebukes them, right? Not just, but instructs them. He ought not to be there. He ought to be going to Oyasha. The word ought is an important one there. That's a teaching word, right? Here is what ought to happen, right? And now Hyoi is not going to experience any long-term benefit from this instruction, but when is is, right? I don't doubt when is is going to turn that into poetry. And then many others will benefit from this. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, it is possible that... Um, The species didn't fall, but creation has fallen. But it feels to me like the opposite of that, really. Like the world itself, Malachandra itself, is an unfallen world in the sense that its fundamental order has not been disordered, right? Um, If the human species is, you know, has that, you know, fundamental tendency towards you know, competition and oppression of each other and things like that. Well, that seems to be endemic in the natural order here on Earth. Species preying on each other and and all these other things, right? Um, The natural order there in Malacandra is not like that. It's functioning smoothly under the rule of their uncorrupted Oyarsa. Um, And that seems to prevent even though we do see evidence that sin is a thing that disobedience is possible they do and there is death absolutely jennifer um uh exactly so we have lots of reasons to think that they are themselves fallen and yet the whole system does not collapse right um there are limits to how far they go um, yeah. And Brian, I agree the now on Malachandra still have free will. That's very clear here. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, anyway. We could debate this for a while. We'll see some more evidence as we move forward, but we should probably do that. Hyoi sighs and says, we must put Hman ashore and teach him the way to Meldalorn. But of course, right then is when the Hnakra appears, right? Hwin shouts and points to the Hnakra and they attack it and they slay the Hnakra before putting Ransom ashore to send him on his way to Oyarsa, right? When he recollected himself, they were all on shore, wet, steaming, trembling with exertion, and embracing one another. It did not now seem strange to him to be clasped to a breast of wet fur. The breath of the hrasa, which, though sweet, was not human breath, did not offend him. He was one with them. That difficulty, which they, accustomed to more than one rational species, had perhaps never felt, was now overcome. They were all now. They had stood shoulder to shoulder in the face of an enemy, and the shapes of their heads no longer mattered. And and he, even Ransom, had come through it and not been disgraced. He had grown up. They were on a little promontory, free of forest, on which they had run aground in the confusion of the fight. The wreckage of the boat and the corpse of the monster lay confused together in the water beside them. No sound from the rest of the hunting party was audible. They had been almost a mile ahead when they met the Hanakra. All three sat down to recover their breath. So, said Hyoy, we are Hnakrapunti. This is what I have wanted all my life. Um, yeah, Sarah, exactly. He's gotten over his space racism. Yeah, exactly. This, this, and of course, a lot of it had to do with his earthbound categories. Right. Remember, he kept going back and forth between thinking of it like a man, which was shaped like a beast and thinking of it like a beast, which had the brain of a man. Right. Um, but that's because he didn't have this other category. Right. This category of now some different now, which is not him, which is not man, but which is though separate, though different in that sense of being an independent, rational species, the equal of man. Um, and now he is able to see him, to see them that way at last. No more comparisons to men and beasts in that way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Stephen says, uh, that's interesting because I love dogs dearly, but I'm still offended by their breath. <laughs> yes, especially my dog, I will say, Stephen. Um Yes. Yes. Um, Brian, I agree that um, uh, it is interesting, right? Uh, So Brian says, while Hyo's disobedience could be said to cause his death, he is also given the chance to kill Ahnakra, his greatest desire, right? I mean, could you call his death death? which is just about to happen, right? Immediately after he says, this is what I have wanted all my life, right? The crack of the rifle is going to go off. Um, and my money is on divine uh, shoots Hyoi, right? He's, he is seconds away from death when he utters that sentence. Would Hyoi be sorry, right? Would Hyoi think that the death... That he was about to die was a punishment for his disobedience. Was a was would he associate it with shame? I, I don't think so. It's possible to read this like again he was, yo, was putting his own desire before his obedience, right? And now he's glorying in that. You could say, right? This is what I have wanted all my life. Now having. Focused on his desire, he has now seized his desire and and claimed it for his own. Um, And then in that moment, the mortal blow comes, right? And so one could look at this and from a certain perspective say, that's just cut and dried, right? At the very moment in which he is at the pinnacle of his vainglory, right? His vainglorious celebration of his own selfish and disobedient will, he is stricken down. And let that be a lesson to everybody else, right you could that that reading would work, but I dislike that reading rather intensely um uh, i don't I don't think that that i could and mostly because I cannot imagine Hyoi himself thinking that I cannot imagine uh, in dying in this moment, in a se- from one way of looking at it, of course, it's a tragedy. He could have lived for much longer. Quite likely, his wife is uh, hearing the news that she's pregnant. There is much of his life that is before him, and yet, to die now, in this moment, we are nakrapunti. Punti, this is what I have wanted all my life. That is a good poem right that would make a great song and i cannot imagine that um uh he would mourn that over over much um i really can't um Yeah, Amber, exactly. Dying during a hunt seems to be a pretty cool poetry-inspiring thing. Yes, even the irony, right? Even the irony and tragedy of having just become a Hnakrapunti only to be stricken down by another stranger, literally alien, enemy, right? In the next moment, the the irony and pathos of that, come on, that that doesn't make it worse. That makes it better, wouldn't it? from the Hross point of view, I don't want to minimize it, but do you see what I mean? Um, yeah, Karita, exactly. He gets his wish, his life is complete, and it's a good story, sad but good. Yeah, that's that's just how this feels uh, to me. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you're right, Colette, almost certainly the first Hross to be killed by, by Ahman, right? Um <sighs> could he be the first murder victim in living memory maybe even in Malachandrian history it's possible right and again that's worthy of song right um and that it should happen to a hnakra punti who is still literally standing over the body of the hnakra i mean ah, oh, there's so much there's so much there Right, This is uh, wonderful material for song, um, and I hope it doesn't sound like I'm belittling it. Right, I, I'm not trying to belittle grief, and I'm not trying to... But I'm trying to understand the perspective of the Hrassa, as we've been taught it, and they don't fear death, Sarah. We've been told that very clearly. They have a very different view of death uh, from humans. Um so um yeah yeah um I yeah even to think about his death as a punishment I'm not sure that that's a thought it doesn't seem to occur to them, the Ross I mean, um yeah, yeah, um yeah, um yeah, Curita <laughs> says, killed in such a cowardly way after a brave and successful hunt. it's a folk song if if ever I heard one, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, very good. Okay, let's keep going. At that moment, Ransom was deafened by a loud sound, a perfectly familiar sound, which was the last thing he expected to hear. It was a terrestrial, human, and civilized sound. It was even European. It was the crack of an English rifle, and Hyoy, at his feet, was struggling to rise and gasping. There was blood on the white weed where he struggled. Ransom dropped on his knees beside him. The huge body of the hros was too heavy for him to turn round. Huin helped him. Hyoi, can you hear me? said Ransom with his face close to the round seal-like head. Hyoi, it is through me that this has happened. It is the other Hmana who have hit you, the t- The bent two that brought me to Malacandra. They can throw death at a distance with a the thing they have made. I should have told you. We are all a bent race. We have come here to bring evil on Malacandra. We are only half now. Hyoi... His speech died away into the inarticulate. He did not know the words for forgive or shame or fault. Hardly the word for sorry. He could only stare into Hyoi's distorted face in speechless guilt. But the Hross seemed to understand. It was trying to say something, and Ransom laid his ear close to the working mouth. "'Hioi's dulling eyes were fixed on his own, "'but the exp- but the expression of a cross was not even now perfectly intelligible to him. Hm- h-m, "'It muttered, and then at last, "'Kman, lakropunt." "'Then there came a contortion of the whole body, "'a gush of blood and saliva from the mouth. "'His arms gave way under the sudden dead weight of the sagging head, "'and Hioi's face became as alien and as animal "'as it had seemed at their first meeting.' The glazed eyes and the slowly stiffening bedraggled fur were like those of any dead beast found in an earthly wood. Immediately we get Ransom's perspective, right? Ransom's view of death. The association between the body of his friend Hyoi and a dead animal hunted or uh, eaten for food, right? In the woods. Um, having just had that experience of finally fully embracing, right? Fully embracing the um, uh, the Hrosa as fellow Hnau and fully intuiting that, right? Now all of a sudden, in a sense, that's ripped away from him as he sees the body of Hyoi only, because the body without the spirit, right, when there is no longer the rational mind at work within the, uh, beast-like body of the Hrosa, it just looks like an animal, right? Um, it's no, it's no longer a person anymore. Um, yeah, yeah, um, And we can see all of the assumptions that he makes. All his guilt, forgive, shame, fault. These are the things that he wants to say. He wants to confess. He wants to ask for forgiveness. He feels like this is all his fault. He feels like Hyoy's death is his responsibility, right? Um. And Huy's beautiful response, man, what do you take from that? What is tell ta- in response to all of this outpouring of shame and guilt, and apology, and confession? How do you understand Huy's response? Brian, I agree with you that it seems unlikely to me as well that either Hyoi in his in dying or Huin afterwards would even really follow Ransom's train of thought here. Um, Brian points out, would the Hrasi even understand his feeling of guilt for what Weston and Divine have done? Like, what exactly is he apologizing for? I'd go even a step further, Brian. Do they really understand? I mean... He, Ransom, has to explain to Huin that they do it on purpose. They would do it even if they knew they were now right? Um, murder is not even a concept, right? Uh, if Frodo is correct that no hobbit has ever slain any other hobbit on purpose in the Shire before, which, is, which as uh, the gaffer might say, would takes a lot of believing, um, but nevertheless, assuming that to be true, they at least have a word for it right? They are familiar with the concept of murder. It's not obvious that the Hrasa are any more than they're familiar with the concept of adultery. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Stephen, we absolutely know how Hyoi values, values the title, Hnakropunt, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Kit, I agree, he's assuring him that he is a person of honor to be a Hanakrapunt is the one, you know, the greatest honor. This is, this is the the pinnacle of Hyoi's life. Uh, you know, the thing that he has wished for all his life, as we were told. Um, it is, uh, David, a response of grace. Um, Ransom had just called himself a half Hanau, uh, as if, we, as, as, as we would say subhuman, but Hyoi merely bes, bestows upon him the worthy title that ransom has earned in that. So he's not only reinstating him as or or accepting him as now. Right. But saying far from being a half now, right. You are, um, you are now one of the great among the Hrossa, Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Colette says she would uh, paraphrase his last words as, "Human, isn't it great what we got to accomplish together?" Right? Yeah, I mean he's at the. I mean, Colette, as you as you suggest, the minimal way to say it would be to say that uh, that Hyoy is focusing on the good side, right? Focusing on the let's let's think about the good times that we had together, right? Um, but I agree, it seems to be even more even more than that. Um, yeah. Um, but Brian, I do think we could probably go further and suggest that Hyoy is rejecting what Ransom is saying about humanity, or at least about its application to Ransom, right? Um, he cannot be as bent as he says. Uh, he cannot have merely come to bring evil on Malachandra. He is a nakrapunt, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. David Attlee was just suggesting almost exactly the same thing there. Yes, yes. Um, th- the act of cooperation between Khnau demonstrates his value. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he heads off after explaining some things to Huin. Um, he, uh, heads off to Oyarsa, following Quinn's instructions. This resolution, that is, his resolution to go on to Oyarsa, this resolution seemed to him all the more certainly right, because he had the deepest misgivings about that journey. He understood that the Harandra, which he had to cross, was the home of the Sorns. In fact, he was walking of his own free will into the very trap he had been trying to avoid ever since his arrival on Malacandra. Here the first change of mood tried to, ra- tried to raise its head. He thrust it down. And even if he got through the Sorns and reached Meldalorn, who or what might Oyarsa be? Oyarsa, Huin had ominously observed, did not share the Hrossa's objection to the shedding of the blood of Ahnau. And again, Oyarsa ruled Sorns as well as Hrossa and Fiffletriggi. Perhaps he was simply the arch-Sorn. And now came the second change of mood. Those old terrestrial fears of some alien cold intelligence, superhuman in power and subhuman in cruelty, which had utterly faded from his mind among the Hrossa, rose clamoring for readmission. But he strode on. He was going to Meldalorn. It was not possible, he told himself, that the Hrossa should obey any evil or monstrous creature. And they had told him—or had they? He was not quite sure—that Oyarsa was not a Sorn. Was Oyarsa a god? perhaps that very idol to whom the sorns wanted to sacrifice him but the hrosa though they said some strange things about him clearly denied that he was a god there was one god according to them meleldil the young nor was it possible to imagine hyoi or hnora worshipping a blood-stained idol Unless, of course, the Hrasa were, after all, under the thumb of the Sorns, superior to their masters in all the qualities that human beings value, but intellectually inferior to them and dependent upon them. It would be a strange but not an inconceivable world, heroism and poetry at the bottom, cold scientific intellect above it, and overtopping all, some dark superstition, with scientific intellect helpless against the revenge of the emotional depths it had ignored and neither will nor power to remove a mumbo jumbo but ransom pulled himself up he knew too much now to talk that way he and all his class would have called the eldila a superstition if they had merely described if they had been merely described to them but now he had heard the voice himself no oyarsa was a real person if he was a person at all Okay, so we see him falling back into struggling with his old struggles, struggling with his old ideas, right? Um, We have clamoring for readmission, all of those old prejudices, those old assumptions about how the world is, about how the universe is, right? Uh, What the Sorns must be like, what Oyarsa must be like, what must really lie beneath the apparently attractive exterior of this society, that he has been exploring and uh, dwelling among, right, for weeks now. Um, And, but he's able to push that down, right? If Oyarsa is a person, he's a real person. He's not going to be just a mumbo-jumbo. He's not going to be just that the Sorens aren't doing the 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 pay-no-attention-to-the-man-behind-the-curtain thing with the Hrossa, Right? He knows the Hrosa too well to believe that that is possible, right? Is it possible that the Sorns are thoroughly corrupt, right? Um, cold scientific intellect? Uh, possible. Possible. But he now has... Um, he now has a kind of faith. (laughs) Takako says, "Uh, am I the only one who's imagining that he might have read E.R. Burroughs? Yeah. Ransom, yes. That Ransom has read Burroughs would not be the least bit surprised. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Anyway, uh, he has a kind of faith now, built, founded on his knowledge of the Hrosa, right? When he was struggling against or rather when he was firmly in the grip of these fears right these fears which he brings from his society from his world and basically imports them into Malakandra when he when he's in the grip of those he knows nothing right he has no data about what things are really like in Malakandra it's only his ignorance it's only when he's left in the void, to guess what it might be that his imagination supplies him with material drawn from these other things. Um, these uh, Barovian and uh, Lovecraftian uh, things, right? If Lewis read Lovecraft, which he probably didn't. But anyway, that genre of stuff, right? Um, knowing, not knowing what to expect... That's immediately where where his imagination goes. But his imagination is no longer free to roam. He has data now, right? He has experience of the Hrossa. And if he is going to maintain his intellectual integrity, he has to make... and, And if he's going to be in the grip of these fears again and maintain his intellectual integrity, he has to reconcile those fears and those imaginings with um with the knowledge that he now has uh of the Hrosa and at the end of the day he can't do it right he chooses not to do it right that they he doesn't believe that that is really possible um and colette absolutely his hearing the voice of an eldo for himself is another really important important um uh data point right um. Uh, that informs him, right? He can't imagine that this is just some dark superstition, right? The Eldila are real. He's heard one now. So why can't Oyarsa be the same, right? Why could he not be a person? And that fits much better with the Hrasa as he knows them, right? Um. Yeah. Kareta, I agree with you. Kareta says, "Superhuman in power, subhuman in cruelty" is so interesting, given the power and cruelty on display in his fellow humans. Yeah, exactly. Subhuman in cruelty, like really? I mean, kind of. If you look around here, right today, it's kind of looking like the humans are setting the standard for cruelty, right? So, uh, uh, is is it true to say that something really, really cruel? Is subhuman in cruelty? Eh, you know, not quite sure. I get once again, we see... um, uh, uh, We see... Ransom's... Those thoughts are... You know, these thoughts, these temptations, these imaginings are associated with these biases and ways of thinking about things that he brought from his own world. He's already been reoriented on many of those. Right. And that's why at the end when these at at the end of the day, when these things, uh, you know, a clamor for readmission, they don't receive readmission. Right. He is fortified against them now because they no longer form the basis of his of his thought, of his imagination, of his assumptions. Right. Um, He now knows better. He now has learned better. He's been reoriented. And those kinds of assumptions. uh, Carita, that's a really wonderful point. Um, It's not only the imaginings, but like the framework and premise of the way those imaginings are described, which betrays the mindset, right, that he used to have, that he would have had. Yeah. Stephen, I agree. Stephen is quoting from Mere Christianity, where Lewis said, uh, um, the battle is between faith and reason on one side and emotion and imagination on the other. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. As when he's talking about faith and defining faith. Um, absolutely. Lewis, uh, you can often see uh, Lewis in his fiction, you know, basically embodying in his stories a lot of the ideas that he explained in prose elsewhere. By the way, the Hrossen, the, the, the Hrossan culture is uh, an example of that. One of the things that he says at one point, I'm trying to remember which... Gets in... Um, I don't remember. But anyway, uh, he's talking about prehistoric man and the kind of assumptions that people make about prehistoric man. Like, since all of the physical artifacts they find from prehistoric man are crude, people assume that prehistoric man must have been unsophisticated uh, and also intellectually crude himself, right? Him and herself. Um And Lewis says, how do we know this is so, right? Okay, so like their physical artifacts are crude, but perhaps they had highly sophisticated elements of their society which don't survive as fossils, right? Which don't survive as artifacts. And poetry is the example that he gives, right? They they could have had excellent and very sophisticated poetry and crude flints that they chipped. Right, um, and we wouldn't never know it, and so the, the Hrasa is uh the 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 society of the Ross is a uh an example of uh of of that same i mean if an archaeologist were to come and look at this village you know ten thousand years in the future, there would be nothing that would suggest that the Hrasa had any kind of sophisticated uh intelligence, certainly nothing to suggest they knew astronomy right could point to Tholchandra in the sky uh, knew the difference between stars and planets and why that was important had this immensely sophisticated and robust artistic and poetic tradition, right? Nothing to suggest that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then he finally gets... Uh, Staggering through the almost negligible atmosphere that remains up on the Harandra, uh, he enters into a cave and finds himself confronted with a sorn at last. I think you are from Tholkhundra, small one, said the sorn. Why, said Ransom, you are small and thick, and that is how the animals ought to be made in a heavier world. You cannot come from Glundandra, for it is so heavy that if any animals could live there they would be flat like plates. Even you, small one, would break if you stood up on that world. I do not think you are from Paralandra, for it must be very hot. If any came from there they would not live when they arrived here. So I conclude you are from Thulcondra. The world I come from is called Earth by those who live there, said Ransom, and it is much warmer than this. Before I came into your cave, I was nearly dead with cold and thin air. The sorn made a sudden movement with one of its long forelimbs. Ransom stiffened, though he did not allow himself to retreat, for the creature might be going to grab him. In fact, its intentions were kindly. Stretching back into the cave, it took from the wall what looked like a cup. Then Ransom saw that it was attached to a length of flexible tube. The sorn put it into his hands. Smell on this, it said. The hrosa also need it when they pass this way. Stephen, I think it might be the problem of pain. That was going to be my first guess. That was going to be my first guess. Um, yeah. No, I'll go with that. Anyway. Um, okay. Yeah, so we know the other... Uh, two other worlds, right? Glundandra and Paralandra. We can guess what Glundandra must be, right? What must Glundandra be? The world that is so heavy that no animals could live there. If they did, they would be flat like plates. Yeah, Jupiter, almost certainly, right? Jupiter being the largest of the planets and the heaviest uh, of all the planets. Um, What do we notice about the... so, So this is our first real experience. He saw the storms from a distance, but barely counts, right? This is the first time he has interacted now with yet another species of of now, and what do we notice? What observations would you make about these this opening scene with the Sorn? Yeah, Jennifer, you absolutely see how logical they are, right? Um, the the reasoning pattern of the Sorn and its readiness to explain its reasoning, right? Um, Very methodical, right? Um, That is clearly a big part of their outlook. Not into small talk, I agree. Um, Yeah, exactly. Stephen says, the Sorn immediately analyzes him and explains its analysis. Yes. Um, the, The Hrosser are very often thinking poetically. Right, the Sorn seems to be thinking logically, rationally, right that's how it approaches things. Um, it has oxygen in a tube, right um, so we have some very clear evidence of technology, higher technology than anything. Remember Ransom was inclined to call the cross society, um uh old stone age, right? And now here he's being given a an oxygen mask as soon as he goes into the cave of the Sorns. Yeah. Um Good Brian points out that neither the Hrasa nor the, nor the Sorns have any inclination to fear Ransom or suspect his intentions on Malachandra. Yeah, he is not—just as we were looking at how those, um, those yellow beasts, the giraffe-like beasts, um, didn't seem to have any fear of Ransom and what that suggested about the society there in Malachandra. Um, so none of the species seem to be really worried about him, right? Um, he is not greeted with fear or even any kind of serious uneasiness, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Notice the combination of. There's another interesting combination that I find here. First, the first impression of the Sorn is that it's, based on its physical surroundings, you would think it was the even more crude as far as its artifacts and stuff are concerned than the Hrosa, right? The Hrosa at least build houses and boats, right? The Sorn lives in a cave. I mean, so he comes in and there's a cave and there's a fire in the cave, right? Um... The very first impression is that it's very possible that the the Sorns are at an even lower cultural level than the Hrossa, right? And but that's you know blown out of the water completely when he reaches for the oxygen mask, right? But that combination of things—an advanced scientific intelligence—if you can bottle oxygen, you're doing pretty well, right? That's not old Stone Age, right? And yet, if you have the technology to bottle oxygen, um, you could probably do other things. Like, you know, a couch. <laughs> maybe some wall-to-wall carpeting, right? Something. You know, a, uh, a screen door, maybe. Uh, you know, a space heater. I, I don't know. I mean... um. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But we don't see any of that. We don't see any of that. Um, yeah, Stephen points out that the Sorn doesn't immediately think of Ransom's need for oxygen. But as soon as it's aware of his distress, it wants to help him. Right. Um. So, yes, the Sorn is rational and it is... Logical, and it is compassionate, but it's not all-knowing, right? Um. It's not until Ransom mentions that he's you know kind of having trouble breathing that the Sorn suddenly reaches for the the oxygen, right? Um. So yeah, there's stuff that it doesn't know or that it's sort of slower to uh, um, uh, slower to figure out, right? Um. Yeah. And of course, now that he's in a congenial discussion with the Sorn, uh, by the way, when he first comes in to uh, Aubrey's cave, any classic scholars, any famous scenes we should be thinking of? He alludes to it. Lewis alludes to it briefly. There's a brief reference to it. Um, any, uh, any scene in classical st- epic that we should uh, remember, maybe with some misgivings? Yeah, we could be thinking of Aristotle's cave. I was thinking more of, of the Cyclops in Homer. Uh, in his cave, Odysseus is Cyclops, um, going into the cave home of this gigantic creature, where you are granted a kind of hospitality, right? But there's a catch to it, uh, and you're going to be trapped and probably eaten and killed. We're kind of—it looks like it could go in that direction, right? That that uh, that frame is there, right? That, that, that backdrop is present. And yet of course the situation is quite different. Yes, Jennifer, exactly. The uh uh the fact that he's a cheesemaker, right? Which mean, means not only is he blessed, but uh that yes, he's a shepherd as well, right? That there's uh uh there's 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 probably a flock somewhere if uh he makes cheese. Um yeah, good. Yeah, oh good, yeah, I I agree. David Arbock is pointing out that he was thinking of uh of the of Plato's cave um because uh the uh because of the way that Ransom first sees the shadow of the Sorn before he sees the Sorn itself. Um and David, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that because there is a sense in which that is a mere recapitulation of what's been happening, right? Until he meets Aubrey he has never he's never encountered anything but the shadow of a sorn right he has encountered the dark shadow that the sorn has that the outline of the sorn has thrown up in his mind right and he's never actually met a sorn the sorn himself um so that that introduction um that introduction uh you know that he sees the shadow of the sorn and then the sorn itself uh certainly i think is right to recall plato's cave in that sense that he now is meeting the real thing behind the shadow behind the appearance behind that uh you know all those horrible misgivings and assumptions and fears that he has been fighting ever since he overheard that horrible half conversation in the uh in the uh in the ship um and now he's encountering the real thing like plato's uh, the person in Plato's analogy turning from the shadow to the real thing. Okay, but anyway, now that he's in this conversation, he's got to finally try to figure out how do things really work politically on Malakandra. right? Couldn't get it out of the Hrasa, maybe he can get it out of the Sorn. Do you rule the Hrasa? Oyarsa rules them. And who rules you? Oyarsa. But you know more than the Hrasa? The Hrasa know nothing except about poems and fish and making things grow out of the ground. And Oyarsa, is he a Sorn? No, no, small one. I have told you he rules all now. So he pronounced Hnau, and everything in Malachandra. I do not understand this Oyarsa, said Ransom. Tell me more. Oyarsa does not die, said the Sorn, and he does not breed. He is one of his kind. He is the one of his kind who was put into Malacandra to rule it when Malachandra was made. His body is not like ours, nor yours. It is hard to see, and the light goes through it. Like an Eldil? Yes, he is the greatest of the Eldila who ever came to a Hondra. What are these Eldila? Do you tell me, small one, that there are no Eldila in your world? Okay, so... Um, yes, David, I love that too. David, you're right. The, uh, the Hrasa know nothing is delightfully similar to the Hrasa's description of the Sereni. Yes. The Sereni are perfectly useless in a boat, right? Uh, and they can't recite a poem to save their lives, right? They can't make a poem to save their lives. Um, both of them have a sort of genial, uh, lack of respect for the others in a sense, right? Um... But uh, so yes, the Sorns no more, right? Aubrey knows the Sorns no more. That's what they do, right? No problem. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and Creator, you're right. Uh, poems and fishing and farming isn't nothing. But then again, based on what the Hroza told us about the Sorns, that's exactly how you would have expected the Sorns to talk. Right, um, yeah, absolutely. So, Ransom is still not able to satisfy his understanding, right? To prove his theories about who is actually in charge. Notice his what underlies his question there: Who rules the Hroza? Who rules you? but you know more than the Harasa. And therefore, you must rule them, right? Since you know more than them. I mean, he doesn't say that, right? But that's what he seems to be implying, right? So you're not denying that you are the intelligentsia. And yet you're telling me that you don't rule the Harasa. He finds this as hard to understand as he did the innate monogamy of the Harasa, right? Um, So... Okay, But we seem to have the solution to the political question as well. The, the explanation of why things are like that. Why does it not matter that the Sorn's no more? Answer, because Oyarsa rules both of them. And Oyarsa is not a Sorn. He is the greatest of Eldila who ever came to Ahondra. He's not just the greatest of the Eldila, in Malachandra. He is the greatest of all Eldila everywhere," says Aubrey. Okay. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Nancy says, "Huh? What are the odds?" Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, Kit. Uh. Kit th- says that the theory that the intelligentsia must rule is charming. Um. Yes, and David was also just suggesting that Ransom doesn't really understand human society either if he, if he believes that the intelligentsia rule. Um, what I will say is that we've talked some about the social ideas that were becoming increasingly dominant in english society in the 1930s all the you know the the fad of eugenics and um you know the one of the this was this was still at the point historically when there was a confident belief that our understanding of science was going to grow and grow like that like you know Our mastery of nature through science was growing greater and greater and was just going to keep increasing and increasing so that there can be no question that as scientific progress continues at this, you know, increasing rate, not just steady, but increasing rate, um, those who have sort of the keys to the, uh, you know, the scientific mastery of nature we're going to obviously rule, right? Politics wouldn't matter at that point um, because those who could control, you know, everything in the world uh, would have the power, right? And that power was going to come through science. That power is going to come through the intellect. Um, Of course, what has actually happened since that time is that scientific discovery and understanding did improve and improve, But what came to happen in the decades after the 30s was an increasing sense of the more we came to understand, the more we came to realize how little we understood (laughs) about things. So instead of things, you know, proceeding on this uh, uh, this quick path towards uh, domination of the universe, it didn't pan out that way. Right. But it was it was very much the concept Um, that it's another one of those assumptions that Ransom is bringing from his society. Um, So I don't think he's just oblivious. Uh, I mean, certainly we look at our society and the idea that the intelligentsia rules in our society does certainly seem fairly laughable, right? But our society is very different from the society that, you know... Uh, popular English society in the in the 30s was imagining what I mean they would n- they would not have guessed right about what 2020 would look like uh, had they been guessing. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, Takako. So it isn't that the intelligentsia ever did rule; it's that everybody assumed they were gonna, right, because of the unprecedented power over nature that science was preparing to put into the hands of humans and so that those who were the most advanced scientists would have the keys to the power of like all things they would be unlocking There, you know that we would suit, we we were rapidly approaching the perfection of the physical sciences so that like all disease and all uh, uh you know that you know like climate and whatever else, like all of these things we would have the keys to pretty soon and be able to manipulate those things at will. Psychology would improve to the uh, rapidly to the place where we can basically program people any way that we want to. Right. Uh, You know, these are, um, these are part of that same culture that believes in eugenics, right? Let's, let's uh, genetically craft the next step in evolution, right? The perfect human beings, because like we totally, A, know what that looks like and B, how to get there. Right. Um, those ki- but those kind of assumptions were were are out there, um, uh, definitely out there. And Bruce, yes, I am thinking if you want to uh, I agree with that recommendation, people who want to learn more about Lewis's characterization of that trend in his contemporary society and his response uh, to them. Um, the abolition of man is the book to read there, uh, where he addresses that most most clearly um, yeah, yeah um, also his next two books in this trilogy absolutely yeah that it will certainly come back um, yeah, anyhow, okay, i don't wanna, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent there but um but that that's my understanding of what Lewis through ransom means when he uh, thinks he's cotton on to the fact that the Sorens must be in charge because they are the intelligentsia. Okay. Anyway, but turns out, no. Oyarsa rules everybody. Right. And this is the answer to his questions. Goes back to our earlier discussion. Right. The order is kept. The order is maintained. Peace is maintained by Oyarsa. Right. Because the elder, remember what what Huin said, right? Remember when Hwin said when Ransom suggests, um, Ransom doesn't want to leave Hwin because he's afraid he's going to leave Hwin in danger because Ransom because Weston and Divine are still out there with their gun, right? And Hwin tells him, it's not a tells him that it's not about what he thinks should happen, right? Or what he he says it's about what an Eldil says. Right, that that's it. It's it's t- the the eldil has said what should happen, and now it's time for obedience. Right, um, there is what seems like a pretty absolute um, hierarchy of all the Khnau and the eldila above them, with oyarsa as the chief of the eldila. This is when ransom is brought to uh what looks like a college you know like a, a sorn you right uh, the uh, the 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 elderly uh, and uh, venerable sorn who appears to have students or uh, disciples right and they quiz ransom about the earth and he uh, sets himself to answering honestly and not uh, um, you know smoothing over any uncomfortable truths any embarrassing truths about what human society is really like. We have no Oyarsa in my world, said Ransom. That is another proof, said the Sorn, that you come from Tholkhandra, the silent planet. What has that to do with it? The Sorn seemed surprised. It is not very likely, if you had an Oyarsa, that he would never speak to ours. Speak to yours? But how could he? It is millions of miles away. Oyarsa would not think of it like that. Do you mean that he ordinarily receives messages from other planets? Oh, I'm sorry. This is Aubrey. This is not... He's not yet at the school. Um, do you mean that he ordinarily receives messages from other planets? Once again, he would not say it that way. Oyarsa would not say that he lives on Malakandra and that another Oyarsa lives on another earth. For him, Malakandra is only a place in the heavens. It is in the heavens that he and the others live. Of course they talk together. Ransom's mind shied away from the problem. He was getting sleepy and thought he must be misunderstanding the Sorn. Um, first, of course, I like the gentle hint that although Ransom is himself a member of the Intelligentsia, right, uh, this he is not as smart as the Sorn is, right? He's just not getting it. Um, yeah. But... This is, as I said, the final inversion, the final inversion of perspective. He already had a foretaste of it while he was traveling, right? About what the heavens are really like. It's not space. It's not the the empty vacuum of space. It is the heavens, full of light and life, and that the earths themselves are, you know, dark spots, are shadows... In the middle of that that radiant light of the heavens, so in that experience, he already had a taste of this reality. But to to see that the question is not the now here in Malakandra, they live here on the planet, and they are and there dwell among them these other beasts, these other creatures, right, who are greater than they and who give them orders. Right, um, it's the situation is completely different, right? In fact, just as the Earths are all little dark spots or shadows in the luminous and glorious heavens, so the Eldila are the real inhabitants of the solar system, right? And the way in which the Hanao cling to these particular Hundra. Right, how they pre- cling to these particular Earths, and their Earths are spinning and passing through various parts, but only one part at a time. Right, uh, in what must look like a very painfully slow progression. Um, that is the limitation. Right, it's so there is a sense in which Earth, Malakandra, aren't real. They're not the real worlds anyway. Right, those are just. The interruptions of the of the real world. Um, it isn't the Eldila that are ethereal and hard to see. It is humans. It is the now who are tiny, limited, slow moving, and practically invisible specks to the Eldila. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Anyway, uh, yeah, Bruce is asking how much Lewis would know about Einstein and his view that large masses like planets make depressions in the curvature of space-time. Had he read the general theory of relativity? Don't know. Have to ask about that one, too. Uh, But I don't think... It would not surprise me at all to find that he knew nothing of none of the specifics. It wouldn't surprise me to learn that he had, and he wouldn't even have had to have read it for himself. It's the kind of thing he could easily have learned in common rooms in Oxford. Um, and we know that many interdisciplinary conversations of those kinds did happen at Oxford, at this in this period especially. So um, I think it's very possible that Lewis might have known about relativity. But again, if it turned out not to be the case, uh if it turned out he knew nothing about relativity, it wouldn't shock me at all. The apparent coincidence between those things, right? Uh Einstein's gravitational well concept and uh um and Lewis's idea of you know, the uh the the, the earth's as dark holes in the middle of the, the similarity there, it's exactly the kind of thing that happens a lot in science fiction, actually. Um. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. If he can wrap his mind around this, which he can't right now, right? He will finally begin to understand and he will finally begin to put himself into the proper perspective. Remember this. Remember this new perspective that Aubrey is trying to share with him, right? This is going to be really important later, especially when we get back to Weston and Divine. And now, said Ransom, how shall I find my way to Oyarsa? I will carry you, said the Soren. You are too small a one to make the journey yourself, and I will gladly go to Meldalorn. The Hrossa should not have sent you this way. They do not seem to know from looking at an animal what sort of lungs it has and what it can do. It is just like a Hross, if you died on the Harandra, they would have made a poem about the gallant Khman, and how the sky grew black and the cold stars shone, and he journeyed on and journeyed on, and they would have put a fine speech for you. Uh, they would have put in a fine speech for you to say as you were dying, and all this would seem to them just as good as if they had used a little forethought and saved your life by sending you the easier way round. I like the Hrosa, said Ransom a little stiffly, and I think the way they talk about death is the right way. They are right not to fear it, Rensum, but they do not seem to look at it reasonably, as part of the very nature of our bodies, and therefore often avoidable at times, when they would never see how to avoid it. For example, this has saved the life of many a hros, but a hros would not have thought of it. And he's talking about the oxygen mask, of course. Um, <laughs> yes, Karida, I, lo- I, I love this. This is... Perhaps my favorite glimpse into Haros culture, right? Um, and what I certainly hear as the good-natured amusement of the Sorn, right? In his slightly ironical um, characterization of the Frost culture. <laughs> right? Uh, they would have made a poem about the gallant Haman and how the sky grew black and the stars shone and he journeyed on and journeyed on. Notice how here for the first time and really the only time um Aubrey's language is becoming poetic, right? He he appears to be at least dimly echoing the kind of poetic style of, uh, of the Hrosa, right? Um... Yeah, this is uh this is lovely. Notice Ransom's stiffness, right? Um his defensiveness. Exactly, Carita. Um <laughs> Yes Stephen says I feel a very close kinship to the Sorns. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Um Yeah, David Atley says the Hrassa have too much northern courage for the Sor- for this ceremony. Yes, yes, agreed. Um uh yeah um yeah David. I do wonder what the Hrosa would say i think the harsa would find this conversation very funny if ransom were to convey it back to the to the to the Hrosa, right um that they would no doubt make a joke of the sorn's perspective you know that he um you know because it's One of the things that emerges from this discussion, right, is that there are two ways of thinking about things. There are two ways of understanding, and they're both valuable, right? And neither one, neither the Sorns nor the Hrasa, really understand each other. They don't think alike, but they both bring something useful to the table. If everyone thought like the Hrasa, well, society wouldn't get on as well, Right? Um uh all this would seem to them just as good as if they had used a little forethought and saved your life um there's value in the seronic perspective here, right, but ransom is right; there is value, which appears to be acknowledged by Aubrey, right? They are right not to fear death um but they do not seem to look at it reasonably. Aubrey doesn't pretend to really understand how the Hrassa think. He's familiar enough with them, right, that he can kind of make this joke. He understands them well enough, um, but he can't really get into it, right? And yet we, through Ransom, can see how Ransom, already valuing the Hrassa point of view, surely can see the Serenic point of view as well, right? <clears throat> Sorry. Um, so, both of them, they have very different perspectives. They look at the world and think about the world in very different ways. But both of them, both of them are good. Both of them are are valuable. Um, yeah, Stephen says, The Sorens would send you halfway around the planet and takes mon- take months longer to get to Oyarsa in order to avoid a minor peril. Yeah, Exactly something like that right um, and it would not make nearly so good a poem um, that is not the way to uh, to to make great songs um, absolutely Jennifer Ewing I agree uh, that um, the uh, emotion and uh, logical decisions to avoid, Death, Right. So she's breaking down uh, Aubrey's last statement. They are right not to fear it, but they do not seem to look at it reasonably. Right. Um, they are right not to submit to that emotional reaction about death. Right. They're not right not to fear it. But it would be good if they looked at it a little more rationally. Right. And I'm sure the Hrosa would say, and it would be good if the Sereni, uh would uh Understand it a little more deeply, right um, yeah yeah um, coming alongside ransom, we gain a pers- a perspective not shared really by any by either of these two species. We can see the value of both right um we can see that uh. That not only are they both different, they're both different in good ways, right? The world would be poorer without either one of them. It's not that neither one of them could survive without the other. Either one of them kind of could survive without the other. But their lives are both greatly enriched by having the other present. Similarly, his description of the Fiffle Triggy. Um, So this is when they're setting out to go and he attaches the oxygen tank to his back. Algray... Sorry, I've been calling him Aubrey with a B. My apologies. Algray, I should have said. Algray fastened the thing on his back and gave the tube over his shoulder into his hand. Ransom could not restrain a shudder at the touch of the Sorn's hands upon his body. They were fan-shaped, seven-fingered, more skin, "'mere skin over bone like a bird's leg, and quite cold. "'To divert his mind from such reactions, "'he asked where the apparatus was made, "'for he had as yet seen nothing remotely like a factory or a laboratory. "'We thought it,' said the Sorn, "'but the Fiffeltriggy made it.' "'Why do they make them?' said Ransom. "'He was trying once more, with his insufficient vocabulary, "'to find out the political and economic framework of Malacandrian life.' They like making things, said Algrey. It is true they like best the making of things that are only good to look at and of no use. But sometimes when they are tired of that, they will make things for us, things we have thought, provided they are difficult enough. They have not patience to make easy things, however useful they would be. And this is clearly the complimentary side, right? Just as he, uh, this is clearly Ogre doing to the Fiffle Triggy what he was just doing to the Hrasa, right? Once again, we see the Serenic inability to, to understand, right, uh, somebody else's point of view. Um, exactly. More interspecies ribbing is what we're getting here, Devora. absolutely. Um, they are the makers. They like making things. What they like making best is art things that are good to look at and of no use that is what the fiffle tricky spend most of their time on, but all gray doesn't value it right um and of no use right is a very telling end of that sentence, right as Nancy says, being good to look at is a use it is it is yes um. Uh, but, um, they have not patience to make easy things, however useful they would be. Um, again, he clearly does not understand. He doesn't understand the poetry of the Hrassa, and he does not understand the visual art of the Fifletriggi. That's very clear. Um, yeah. Exactly, Jennifer. The Sorn think it, the Fifletriggi make it. The Hrassa, compose a poem about it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Stephen. Exactly. You don't want to go. You don't want to go to the Fiffle tricky if you need a doorstop or something like that. Absolutely. Um, uh, now, like a, you know, like a Rube Goldberg machine of some kind. They'd clearly be into that, right? But yeah, yeah. A wedge to put under your door to keep the door open. No, no. They're not going to bother with something like that. At least, again, according to Algray, who I think is a little bit joking, right? Um, uh, I think, um, I, again, I think he's exaggerating a bit uh, with some, you know, ironically, just as he was exaggerating a bit, I think, about the Hrasa, um, but, um But clearly he's pointing to something which is important about them. And we absolutely can see the ways in which um <clears throat> their um their society, their three now society, is very complementary. Right? Um there is clearly a different niche for each one of them. They don't fully understand each other. They're very different, but they're different in very complementary ways. Devorah says she thinks she's a fiffletrig. Um uh yeah, uh, yeah, and I agree. Karita, was it you who said we totally need a which which now are you Facebook quiz? I agree. I can't believe no one's ever made that before, right? That has to exist somewhere, right? Find out if you're a Hrasa, a Sorn, or a Fiffletrig. Um Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Stephen says, I get the impression that Fiffletriggi would make the doorstop, but probably complain jokingly about how the Sorn are incapable of making something so simple themselves. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, how the Sorns only sit around and think and can't do anything. Um, yes, probably so. Probably so. Um. Yeah, David Erbach is trying to imagine the easy-to-make things that the Serenity desperately need the Fiffle Triggy to make for them, but the Fiffle Triggy keep refusing because they're too easy. Uh, yeah, it is kind of fun to try to think of examples for that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Corita, I agree. Let's, 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 let's get a Twitter poll fired up, right? You, you know, you might be a Fiffle Trig if. Um, yeah, Absolutely. Sure, David. Uh, uh, a fork. Yeah, that might. Uh, uh, yeah. Some uh, some tableware that might be uh, that might be too simple, um, though. I guess if they were really fancy, um, you know, they could be highly ornamental and therefore you could probably get a fifth to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, OK. Now is when he's in the school. Sorry. Um, at the end of his discussion, his explanation of human culture. It is because they have no Oyarsa, said one of the pupils. It is because every one of them wants to be a little Oyarsa himself, said Algray. They cannot help it, said the old Sorn. There must be rule. Yet how can creatures rule themselves? Beasts must be ruled by Knau, and Khnau by Eldila, and Eldila by Meleldil. These creatures have no Eldila. They are like one trying to lift himself by his own hair, or one trying to see over a whole country when he is on a level with it, like a female trying to beget young on herself. Two things about our world particularly stuck in their minds. One was the extraordinary degree to which problems of lifting and carrying things absorbed our energy. The other was the fact that we had only one kind of now. They thought this must have far-reaching effects in the narrowing of sympathies, and even of thought. Your thought must be at the mercy of your blood, said the old sorn, for you cannot compare it with the thought that floats on a different blood. That's a fascinating image to me, with thought that floats on a different blood. Certainly the difference in the blood of the Hrosa, the Fifletrugi, and the Sereni is something that we have been seeing, right? That we get uh, fairly broad hints of here uh, in, uh, in, this, in this chapter. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, exactly, exactly, Jennifer. He's setting Ransom straight about the whole in-charge thing. It's Earth that's doing it wrong, right? It's not that one of the species must naturally come to be dominant over the others. It's that all of them should be subordinate to the Eldila, right? So notice, Jennifer, the implication there that Lewis is suggesting Um, this desire for dominance, this desire to become the masters over others, is not just an evil idea in the sense of an idea that is antipathetic to how things should be. It is a bent idea, right? It is a twisted idea. There should be rule. There should be mastery. But not mastery of one group of now over another it, sh- it so we see a positive impulse bent and twisted so that in the end the malachandrian term bent um turns out to be not only their closest approximation but the best approximation um a better and more accurate way of conceiving of what Evil is of what fallenness is. Yeah, David Erbach says, "I really want the Fiffeltricky settlement to be all clockwork gears and stuff." Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Interesting. Stephen is wondering if thought that floats on a different blood is a Sereny phrase, or did they borrow it from the Horossa? Stephen, I have to think that's a Horacean, um, uh thought. It's way too poetic to be Saronic, I, I, I think, especially since it even seems to me to convey the idea of the sort of the sort of rhythms that dominate their music. Right. Um, yeah, I said that we can see evidence for how the three different societies benefit from each other. Algray can't really, doesn't really fully understand the Horossian point of view, but he's clearly benefited from it, right? And I, I think this could well be an example, right? Their way, their poetic way of understanding and conveying things has helped him to understand things in the fact that he invokes so poetic. Um, and this is not augury, sorry, this is the old Sorn talking. But anyway, the, the Sorns have clearly benefited from the Hrossa, I think, from that kind of poetic understanding, just as the Hrossa have clearly benefited from their astronomical instruction, right, um, uh, by the uh, um, uh, by the Sorns, and presumably also by tools that were made for them by the Fiffaltri, as they have dug. Uh, you know, artificial water channels and irrigation systems and things like that, which is something that was probably thought by the Saroni and made by the Fifiltrigi and executed by the Hrassa for the cultivation of food. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree, uh, uh, Marie, that it's probably not a mistake that the Soren would use a phrase from another type of now in his statement that you benefit with with interacting from Interacting with others now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Yes. Exactly, Jennifer uh, Ewing. Science needs poetry to convey their concepts in meaningful language. Right, exactly. The purely logical language of the Sorns doesn't always convey that much. And notice how, uh, you know, Ransom, again, Ransom doesn't always follow it, right? Right. Um, yeah, and Jennifer Pope, of course you're right, we learn later that everybody is using the language of the Hrosa right um, yes yes um, yeah, uh, Nancy, it is too bad that we don't get more of the triggy perspective um, yes yes, um, Nancy's wondering what their uh, philosophy of, of creating objects would be she suspects that they value the process and what you learn about yourself when you're constructing a thing uh possibly we get a couple hints from the one conversation that uh we see ransom having with the fiffle trig uh that gives us some hints into fiffletriggy society, but not too much, and we'll talk about those next time, speaking of which it's almost next time, but actually, yeah, what's stick with next time um we're just getting to meldohorn we might as well start from meldohorn next time we only have a few slides here that i put in from the beginning of meldohorn um we'll uh we'll get there and of course the final meeting with oyarsa uh and my absolute favorite part my favorite part of the book is when ransom translates from english into rossah um uh that is uh that, that's my favorite part of the whole book so we'll get there next time um uh, very good. So next time we're going to finish the book. We're coming to the end. Uh, I may have to do that thing I do sometimes and do an extra long session next time, but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna finish on time. All right. Thanks everybody. Good night. Thanks for a fun conversation, and I'll see you guys next week for our our, our arrival at Meldalorn and our final discussion of Out of the Silent Planet. Thanks everybody. Good night now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org.